0: UNICEF, I've been doing some work with them and they told me they'd done some work on the data side in Edinburgh, and that just blew me away. I help on the development of the
1: computational platform for targets such as the Mars rover.
2: Hi, I'm Kim. And I'm Murray. And this is Scotland's Secret Space Race. Welcome back, Murray.
3: Thank you very much. I, I think Christine was fantastic last week.
2: She's a superstar. I think you're you're on a shugly peg here, mate.
3: <laughs> that that might be the end of my tenure. Oh well, I will I will step aside if need be. But I yeah, really uh, really interesting show. It sounds like you both enjoyed yourselves.
2: We had such a laugh. Honestly, I had to edit out so many giggles to make it even listenable. Largely laughing at me. Uh, well, do you know, we also cut out a lot of cheeky comments about you because we thought we were just getting a bit carried away.
3: <laughs> okay, well, focus, focus. We are,
2: We, you know, we are both big fans of your work, Murray. We have a lot of respect for you, even though we wind you up mercilessly.
3: Okay, well, thank you very much. And I think we've got a, an interesting one this week, actually. An interesting combination of guests.
2: Yeah, I had so much fun speaking to Stephen. Uh, he's out in France, a Glaswegian in France. And when two Glaswegians start chatting, it's just nobody else can understand what you're saying. I'm glad you weren't on that call, actually. But he <laughs> he's full of energy. And I love to see that. And then Tahrul, who we have second, he's fascinating, the, the stuff that he does. I don't fully understand all the engineering work that he's working on. Maybe you could shed some light on his uh, his expertise.
3: Yeah, well, I thought this week we'd have a, a combination of guests with some very different perspectives. So uh, Stephen uh, from the group of Earth Obs- on Earth Observations, um, he's the head of external relations there. And so I wanted to bring in this idea of uh, these international collaborations because we have started off talking about Edinburgh and then uh, expanded out into Scotland, but then looking out internationally. Uh, and The group on Earth Observations is coordinating uh, people from around the world trying to maximize the value of Earth observation data. And then by mm-hmm. contrast, we've got uh, Tahrul, Professor Arslan, who's a professor in the School of Engineering in the University of Edinburgh, to really get that somebody's very, very technical perspective on the latest developments in space. And his interest is developing these these smart platforms. So uh, being able to deploy big data processing and artificial intelligence actually in space, so on the platforms themselves, mostly when we talk about big data processing, we're thinking about like large servers down down here on Earth, and he's pushing this idea of actually uh, increasingly processing data in space, so actually on, on the satellite. So I think that's a, a fascinating angle. And another uh, interesting string to his bow is that he's very entrepreneurial and has been involved in the formation of companies. And we know that, of course, in the Edinburgh City deal, that's a very, very central interest, the idea of creating new companies and creating jobs and growth. But generally, uh, across the UK and across the world, most people are looking to the areas that can grow and provide employment as we face possibly a large recession.
2: Yeah, I found him really inspiring. And I think if I were a student studying engineering, Not only is his knowledge incredible, but the fact that he's putting it into practice, creating companies, creating jobs. I mean, that's why you study, so that you can get a good job at the end of it. So I thought it was really interesting to follow that whole path with him. Um, And then for Stephen, who's, um, as I said, a Glaswegian out in France working internationally, to hear about the the effect that Scottish space is having across the world and the the expertise we have across Scotland in Earth Observation. Earth Observation is something we discussed a lot in the Edinburgh podcast. We haven't touched on it too much in this one. Would you like to give a beginner's guide to what Earth Observation actually is, Murray?
3: Yeah, of course. So Earth Observation involves those platforms which look down on Earth and we have one type of Earth Observation data called optical data, which effectively measures reflected sunlight from the earth's surface and gives you an, an image of the earth that you can make sense of by eye so you'll see roads and trees and and crops and so on and then uh, another type of earth observing data is uh, microwave SAR so synthetic aperture radar data and that actually fires out uh, beams pings of microwave energy at the earth's surface and then records the energy which gets scattered back To the sensor. Um, And then there's another type of active remote sensing called LIDAR, and that fires laser beams down to Earth from space. And that's really, really useful for detecting structure, particularly of vegetation. So we had uh, Steve Hancock in the previous series talking about the JEDI mission. So if you wanted to learn more about that, it'd be worthwhile going back to our first series, uh, Edinburgh Space Data Capital, and listening to Steve Hancock's interview.
2: Yeah, Earth observation is fascinating. It's something that I didn't even understand what that was a couple of years ago. And now I can actually download images from the Sentinel satellite and do time lapsing. But for me, I think what's really interesting as a lay person and not as a scientist is the fact that from space, we can learn so much about the world that can help us save it. And that's what we're all concerned with, isn't it, is just preventing climate change and trying to save the environment. And that's what Earth observation is so useful for, amongst other things.
3: Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting that we talk about saving the environment as if it's, well, A, an optional thing, but B, that we're separate from it. I mean, we we live on Earth and are entirely dependent upon it. And so Earth observation is really, really useful uh, and is increasingly being used in agriculture, for instance, so understanding crop performance looking for areas that are undergoing drought stress and so on and this is obviously going to be a central challenge for us in the future so this is absolutely <laughs> essential stuff and that's why an organization like GEO is so important to coordinate work across the world
2: absolutely well let's stop chatting and let Stephen take it away he's going to explain his role at GEO and what we are doing across the world to use earth observation data
0: GEO has a work program which has more than 60 activities in it and so I tend to cover many of those different activities from a couple of different angles. So my key role is I'm I'm the head of external relations and that covers communications, so there's a comms manager in my team, it covers resource mobilization, so there's a couple of people work with me on basically fundraising and then probably the the largest part, I mean, comms is important, but the the largest kind of part I I spend my time on is a kind of science policy interface work. We're working to look at a number of different international policy instruments. So the Sustainable Development Goals from the UN, the Sendai Framework for Disaster Risk Reduction, the Paris Agreement, and we're also looking at the new urban agenda. So ideally in my team, there would be one person doing each of those things. And at the moment, I only have a climate coordinator doing the Paris Agreement. So I'm kind of babysitting many of those different things.
2: You're a busy man.
0: Yeah, I mean, the way GEO works is we, you know, it's a, it's a huge international community. So we are 111 countries and somewhere between, I don't know, seven 800 national government agencies, maybe more. So we we use the network and we work with the network on all these different topics and we kind of help coordinate and drive a lot of the activities. So although I'm leading some stuff and I'm heavily involved in some stuff, you know, it's mainly the community who's doing a lot of the work. We're just kind of there to a little bit sort of herd cats in in some ways.
2: Excellent. And you're multilingual, which I always admire. And how do you find, because Earth Observation is something that I'm just beginning to get my head around. And obviously it's changed massively in the last few years as more data has become available and it's been more freely available. How have you seen the development of that industry over the last few years?
0: I mean, I, I spent a lot of time in the in the mapping area, working with national mapping agencies and cadastro agencies, land authorities. Probably about five years ago was my biggest entrance into Earth Observations. So just before joining GEO, uh, probably 2015, 2016 was when I joined GEO. I think that the, the thing that I've seen the most is the impact of CubeSats, Nanosats, PocketSats, you know, just the the miniaturisation, the improvement in algorithms, the the open data policy that comes from the public sector that pro- supports the private sector. A lot of work's been done over a long term. Like, you know, a lot of these things don't happen overnight, but the last five years seems to have seen the fruition of a lot of those endeavours in the background. So the whole thing seems to have exploded. And I, I think because... There's more, you know, people want more transparency, they want more up-to-date information. And and one of the ways in a geospatial environment to do that is Earth observations. You know, being able to see change over time, visually, is is much more, you know, that whole sort of like, you remember pictures much longer than you, you do uh, numbers. But also just being able to show a decision maker or a policy maker an image that shows you, you know, here's where water was five, ten years ago, and now there's none, and this is the change that's happened over time. I think that's very powerful. And so I think that realisation has really driven awareness of earth observations in areas where people can start to fund it because they can see the impact.
1: Mm-hmm. So
0: that's then driving, you know, the private sector, the public sector, and 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 some others in the third sector as well.
2: mm mm-hmm. And the thing with data is always trust, isn't it? And, you know, given the situation we're in right now with lockdown and the coronavirus pandemic, do you feel like this has kind of accelerated the feelings towards data and, you know, data that can't be disputed as Earth observation is? Do you think that's made it more powerful from from a government point of view?
0: It really depends on the government's perspective. I mean, you know, if they believe in science, then great, you know, not all governments are created equal. Uh, we we've got a a director who who runs the the secretariat and he he's from Brazil and you know he he came in a couple of years ago and he re- that was what he wanted to do he wanted to work around this this aspect of trust and sort of institutional strengthening so he wanted to create a system which would provide you know, from all of these 60 different activities we have in our work program, they're producing data, they're producing algorithms, they're producing software methods, they're producing a whole pile of things that should be reusable and reproducible. So he's spent the last couple of years putting his efforts into doing that. And ultimately, everything he's he's been trying to drive into the community has been around trust. And actually, you'll see that in almost all our presentations that we talk a lot about that, about, you know, trusted data, trusted organisations, trusted science. So, so yes, it's, it's a big yes from, from our side.
2: And in terms of the UN Sustainable Goals, how important is the data towards achieving these
0: goals? It's, it's enormous. I mean, it's absolutely enormous. I was doing some work with UN Environment, and I can't remember the, the exact statistics, but I think 95 of the 200 and whatever indicators are uh, environmental and we only have data for about 28% of them. So there's a huge amount of data missing there. But then on the other side, we have lots of data for other stuff that we're doing to look at things like food security, water resources management, uh, human settlements. So it's finding the balance, I think. We, one of our partners, the Global Partnership for Sustainable Development Data, they have a program called Data for Now, and we've been feeding into that, and that's all about having current timely data, so making sure people are not making decisions on data from, like, 2005 or or sometime. because we have a huge amount of data. We have a lot of the open data in Earth observations that comes from, you know, NASA has been providing, you know, we, we have their Earth observation data from, from the 70s. We had Landsat, which was, I think, round about 2007 was made open data, and then, like, Seven or eight years later, we had the Copernicus with the Sentinels. So there's a huge amount of that open data that's publicly and freely available that absolutely feeds into the Sustainable Development Goals. So we run a program called, um, well, one of our activities called EO for SDG, Earth Observations for Sustainable Development Goals. And that is uh, Mexico, Japan and the USA working together with another 55 or 60 organizations to look at exactly that. So we're building at the moment, we're building something called an SDG toolkit, which is focusing on SDG 11. And we're working in uh, conjunction with UN Habitat to look at, you know, the kind of safe and resilient communities and cities and using data to make a lot of it, to, to provide the insights and to inform those decisions. Mm. So I could go on and on and on with, you know, that data is absolutely fundamental to, to everything we're doing, but but so is the science and so is the policy and the and the action on the other side. So data's kind of in the middle. You know, I'm a, I'm a Glasgow guy, being being Scottish. I, I mean, I, I, I try to keep my ties with Scotland and I, I do track a lot of stuff. I mean, on Twitter, like, people at Ed Mitchard and Ian Greenhouse and the guys from you know Edinburgh University and I've, I've been tracking the new sense project that's coming out and I know about the Base Centre and it's it's really really good I mean even UNICEF I've been doing some work with them and they told me they had done some work with uh, you know the data on the data side in Edinburgh and that just blew me away you know I'm speaking to guys in New York and they're like yeah 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 we've done a deal in Edinburgh and I mean I, I mean I know Glasgow has like Alba Orbital and Clyde Space and I think, Aspire over there as yeah, well. Yeah, So there's still, you know, it's a I think it's a good, healthy mix of, of, of Glasgow and, and Edinburgh. I mean, and and as you saw, I've got links to Strathclyde University and Glasgow University. So my tenure at Strathclyde is probably about up. So I should probably, you know, do something at Edinburgh now. I should like, <laughs> come across to the dark side. Oh, the,
2: listen, uh, I was born and raised in Glasgow. I hear you, but, I, you know, Scotland's so small and I think it's hilarious that we have this kind of friendly but quite brutal rivalry between Glasgow and Edinburgh considering they're 50 miles apart.
0: (laughs) Well I used to think Edinburgh was really really expensive until I started working in Geneva (laughs) so now I've got a sense of context.
2: Scotland's a fantastic ecosystem there's so much going on in Glasgow and even up in Aberdeen and across the rest of the country as well we don't want to be um, cousin rivalries we want to be working together and as you say on a world stage the fact that people even know what's going on in Glasgow and Edinburgh is something to be really proud of I think.
0: Well I have I mean my my job is working with countries around the world so you know in terms of space agencies last year before the travel stopped I was working with Peru, South Korea, Kenya, Netherlands you know Rwanda's just I think announced they'll have a space agency when when people say to me, like, what's happening in the UK? I mean, obviously I know the UK Space Agency and, and they we have something called a national geo. So UK geo, um, the UK Space Agency is in that. But, you know, it's nice to be able to point people to Scotland as well and say, you know, this is what's happening. This is a lot of emerging activity coming out of Scotland. And then you have to do the whole explaining the UK thing to people in Great Britain and all that kind of stuff. But it's, it's great, it's really, I mean, it makes me really proud, you know, as a, as a Scotsman to see just the growth and, and also like, you know, companies coming in from, from like San Francisco and places to Scotland. I think that's, that's fantastic. It's te- I think it's a real testament to the amount of work that's been done by the government as well as the, the, the private sector in Scotland.
2: even Ramage there and we had such a laugh about glaswegians and edinburgh dwellers and this ridiculous rivalry that exists between two cities 50 miles apart
3: i mean i, I, I found i find it quite funny i mean i'm obviously uh, new new to, to living in scotland uh well actually six years but but i i guess it's it's good that it's a uh, a friendly rivalry and it's um but we do need to pull together as one country and uh and And get out into the world and present ourselves as such, I think.
2: And isn't it cool that he said he's talking to people in New York and they're talking about deals that they've done with companies in Scotland? I mean, we're on an international stage here.
3: Yeah, of course. But then we shouldn't really be too surprised by that because we've got world class universities here and we're in an economy which is increasingly data intensive, increasingly digital. And that works well with the expertise that we have in Scotland and across the UK. So why why should we be surprised at that? I think we've got to get over that idea. that you know, we should be surprised that people are, you know, talking about what's going on here in, in New York. We should pick up that and, and keep going with it. You know, this is the aspiration is to grow and, uh, and, and do more business around the world.
2: Absolutely. And I love that he said, you know, whenever you start talking about Scotland, you've got to explain the UK and the fact that there's four countries and what the links are and <laughs> I know it's funny, isn't it? You can talk high level science, but you can't get the basic geography right. But hey, he's fighting the good
3: fight. It confuses, it confuses a lot of people. Like you know, various conferences I've been to, first question people want to ask is like, what's a, what is the difference between Britain, England, the UK? <laughs> it's like a quite a big stumbling block, apparently. But listen, you
2: mentioned world class universities, and that is something that um, we can definitely be very proud of across Scotland. And we are now going to speak to Tahrul Arslan, who is part of the University of Edinburgh, and his amazing uh, work that he's doing. Have you worked with him before?
3: I work with Tahrul via the Developing Space Programme. Uh, But he's obviously a senior academic and professor in a school of engineering and um, has really been a a trailblazer in in his domain with respect to space. So uh, not working directly, but uh, he's also um, been advising some of our uh, undergraduate students who are going to bring on uh, next week um, the Asteria guys and their plans to develop a, a satellite themselves so um yeah he's fantastic and i think that the fact that he gets involved with uh, with undergraduates as well is a, a brilliant sign of his engagement and commitment
2: yeah he has a lot of energy and the first thing i had to ask him was what was it about space that made him so excited
1: you know i've had very long uh, interest in space you know i mean this is about for almost 25 years and so. My interest in space, at the moment, I'm interested, obviously, of putting intelligent things in space. Intelligent meaning intelligent onboard computing that's able to handle big data and AI and handle that in uh, within specific power budgets and also achieve high performance. So being able to do things like big data and AI, uh, and take data from real sensors and process these specifically in the hostile area of, of space, where you have a lot of faults, failures that might happen. But you still need to compute, and you need to handle a lot of the big data from the sensors that you might have, you know, whether it be it in a Mars rover or on a Pico satellite or a group of satellites, uh, and so on and so forth. So, being able to deal with big data and AI, you know, in the hostile space environment. So doing the actual computing for that, I'm also interested in actually doing the communication, secure communication. That's why I have an interest in smart radio frequency systems, both the smart antennas, as well as the smart RF system. So the key thing is, is if you have small satellites, like eco nanosatellites. These group of satellites in space, they will be communicating with each other and they will need to communicate with each other with small targeted beams of communication. You know, so my one of my research areas is to make these beams as efficient so that they go uh, a long distance and also more focused, such that they don't disperse in space uh, so with that also make this, uh, that has a potential for making them more secure because satellites and small satellites transmit information only between two points or identify two nodes securely.
2: And if you can get it to work in space, getting it to work on the on the Earth is a piece of cake, right?
1: <laughs> <laughs> I think, uh, you know, there are obviously challenges associated with that, but I think that these are the challenges that we're sol- solving through my research, you know. Uh,
2: and is that what excites think, the students that work with you, the, the prospect of, of doing it in such an environment, do you think?
1: Yeah, I think space is a very exciting area for a lot of students, even small kids like my uh, nephews and so on. I think they, 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 some of the students are also excited because I have very good links with NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Uh, the reason being, I worked there in, in the early 2000s as a senior consulting scientist and one of the things I did there is I helped on the development of, again, the computational platforms for targets such as the Mars rover at that stage, you know, so I think that, and I keep the link with JPL to date, you know, I have uh, very strong links with their avionics section, as well as their robotics section, so I have projects that they collaborate with us on these, these two different sections, yeah.
2: So how did you end up in NASA?
1: Well, I think it's my research topic, so I was from very early days in my career, I was interested in intelligent platforms and adaptive platforms. And, you know, I think the first interest to such platforms came from space, you know, published a number of papers on how computers and computing algorithms can adapt in space. So that that's how, through conferences, I developed links with a few scientists at uh, NASA and JPL who became my friends and then who uh, basically asked me to come over and work in JPL. A great opportunity to work with the people there and the facilities and also the place. I mean, I don't know whether you've been to JPL in California. It's a lovely.
2: It's uh, definitely on my list. I'd love to go there. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Uh,
1: It's very nice. Yeah. So uh, it was a pleasure. And, uh, you know, I I think because of my links, I consider those links and the projects and students get enthused by that and uh, uh, thankfully take projects with me, yeah. Yeah. I think Edinburgh has um, is a very nice city first. I think there is also very entrepreneurially friendly, I would say, you know, I think I, I got a number of grants in the early days from Scottish Enterprise, you know, for setting up companies or projects. And I also think, you know, there are a great group of scientists here, you know, I mean, like in the geosciences, I mean, we have also now, you know, the Bay Centre, you know, uh, we also have uh, the Higgs Centre. I mean, the sunshine is the, I would say, the only thing I would probably miss. But I don't like to live in sunshine and hot weather all the time, though, you know. I think I, it just stops me working sometimes. You know? <laughs> I, I, I like the cold sometimes, it's just to work. You mentioned yeah. your,
2: um, your startup grants and things. You're obviously involved with two companies. Are you still as active with those?
1: I'm in, actually, I started three companies. Uh, yeah. And my, if, if I count what my students started, then that would be five. But my uh, direct involvement is three. One of them on, was on computing platforms. And it was in, uh, I think, early, late 2000s, it was sold to a tier one semiconductor company in California. So, but then now, um, as we speak, I'm involved with two, although, uh, you know, uh, Co founded them and I acted as their chief technology officer. But as they grew, you know, I became my involvement became less and less and more advisory and supporting them with research. So one is involved in basically navigation in areas of poor GPS, the other one is more providing smart RF for various markets and it includes the satellite communication market as well. Again, that, so they play on the angle of. Beamforming, security, secure communication, and so on and so forth, which is very much on demand. And my research builds on that, is basically taking that into uh, other platforms, such as nano and pico satellites, and uh, also more in you know advanced devices. I would say you know I like very much where I am at the moment. Specifically, I mean the best thing about the startup is the knowledge that they equip you with when you develop things, and you know, or algorithms or hardware then you know you engage with customers first of all you adapt these to customers platforms and i think the ultimate thing is when customers buy them and they buy them for certain reasons so i think the most satisfying bit about all of that is telling students about it as a lecturer and a professor i think that's by far the mm-hmm. most satisfying thing you know it's just the fact that you convey that to the students
2: can I just ask you again about the Mars rover? Were you actually involved with the development of that?
1: I I was involved actually. I mean, I think there's a lot of people who took that into space and so on. So I think my part was more development of piece, small piece of software for that, you know, which was on the compressing of the video and making it more efficient from a, you know, implementation point of view. In them days, you know, basically the, the all the software and hardware needs to be needed to be very compactly fit into the uh, rover and still needs to be you know there's a lot of uh, algorithms and data and sensing that needs to be done and it needs to be done in a very small piece of space you know so mm-hmm. everybody competes to put their own hardware and software into that so i think you need to do that with uh, with a specific power budget and also area budget as well so my role was as a consulting scientist in making sure that the power consumption was as small as possible.
2: That must have been so exciting to see that.
1: I mean, I mean, obviously, yes, very much, very much so, I would say, yes. And I worked with very good scientists, contractors and scientists at JPL, who I learned a lot from, and I was able to adapt what I've learned, you know, to this day's problems, I would say, yeah.
2: Any other big, exciting projects like that on the horizon?
1: there are many others yeah yeah ma- many others a special um, topic for another podcast oh, good. but there are many there are many i'm glad to say it, we are lucky in uh, scotland that also there are a lot of companies large companies are coming up as well as these research centers but there are also these launch companies that are um, coming up and uh, companies who are dealing with cubesats in scotland in general but also in edinburgh could make for um, you know an entrepreneurial city in space you know i think but what for that what we need is also to have both different you know the, I, I, we, we need to have the investors here as well you know so mm-hmm. i mean we have government support and we need to have more of that both government support academics like myself and others to you know push their ideas forward specifically in the space, space domain to actual uh, possible. Uh, products and then also to have both early stage as well as middle stage as well as uh, larger investors to support these Mm -hmm. companies Uh, so i think that will be my take on the entrepreneurial side i would say to make also to make this or edinburgh and uh, surrounding more like uh, the silicon valley
3: of faith Well, that was brilliant, wasn't it? I, I, I do feel really inspired when I hear people talk like that about Edinburgh being an entrepreneurial city in space. I guess the idea of bringing investors here, well, you know, that, that will come as long as we promote what's going on here in, mm-hmm. in Scotland. Uh, and, and I think that we, we do indeed, we do have these entrepreneurs who are bringing investment uh, along with them. Um, more companies are appearing in Scotland from outside Uh, the UK um, Mm -hmm. and and so that's really reassuring. Uh, It's going to link up to what we do next week in the podcast. We're going to meet some of the young up-and-coming people in in Scotland who are working on their own satellites and I think that's going to be a really strong indication to anyone who's listening about the energy that there is here and hopefully the investors will follow
2: and also next week we're going to speak to tom walkinshaw from alba orbital based in glasgow which is a very cool company fairly young as well making the really tiny satellites which is just amazing when you think how huge satellites used to be and now how tiny they can actually be
3: yeah i think this is one of the most interesting transitions is that we've moved from a point where uh, big companies and nation states controlled space and now we're at a point where we're talking about uh, SpaceX X um, with their Starlink constellation, you know, these companies who are starting to launch more satellites than ever before. And, uh, and Tom's company is obviously at the forefront of what's going on here in Scotland. I'm really, really interested to learn about what they're doing with their um, Pocket Cube satellites and trying to reduce access costs for, for space.
2: Yeah. And just to put it in context, we've gone from satellites the size of a double-decker bus to satellites the size of a shoebox.
3: That's really important, actually, because I suppose we can sometimes assume that people know the actual physical scale. Uh, but the historically, uh, that's the scale that uh, satellites have, have been produced at. And those satellites mm. will probably continue to be produced, but they're sort of multi-year uh, missions and have to be developed by large companies and partnership with nation-states. But then there's this new domain of what's been called agile space. So you'll see this term around, and I think you probably used it a few times in your newspaper articles. But the mm. idea of responding very quickly to market demand and using the um, uh, smaller satellites with quite quick turnaround times from design, implementation, build, and launch. Uh, so this is a, a quite a new aspect to space development and it's something which Scotland can do very very well at so we're at, we're approaching the point where we're going to have a complete value chain from the uh, design and uh, manufacturing of satellites right through to their launch into space with these new space uh, launch companies developing in the country uh, and also of course the launch sites in Shetland yeah. and up in Tongue
2: yeah and we are going to speak to some of the launch companies and people from the launch sites as well in future episodes. There's just so much exciting stuff to discuss.
3: There is I I can't wait actually to speak to the launch companies and to these new launch sites. This uh, this aspect of actually firing things up into space is is brilliant. I think it's because it's so visual and it's so exciting. You know, people grew up looking at Cape Canaveral and and launch missions of course, but The idea that we're going to be doing that from Scotland is is pretty compelling, I think.
2: So you have to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss any of the chat. And if you want to speak to Murray or I, we're on Twitter. He's at Murray B Collins and I'm at Kim McAllister.
3: Thanks for listening.